So we're talking about this idea of step and moving with faith. When it gets moving, something happens. And what I want us to consider and what I want us to sit with in this kind of final segment of this theme is that he being Jesus, he, he has this ability to come to us, to meet us where we are. And it's what's amazing about Jesus is that he has the ability in a room such as ours, in a gathering such as ours, we might have several, many, many different stories and paths and different ways which we have entered this building. And yet he has the ability to meet every single one of us uniquely where we are. He does this promising never to leave us there. That he comes to us to meet us where we are. But he promises never to leave us there. This is so important for us. In fact, I asked him to put this up there, that this idea that he has the ability to move into our space, to meet with us, and then to call us out of that place of the known, it's something that, um, well, it touches on the comfort zone. Because the decision that is laid at our feet is whether or not we are willing to leave what we know to follow him. And this comfort zone, every single one of us has one. Some of us might feel more adventurous and that's our comfort zone. Others of us, we may be a little bit more safe and and conservative in terms of what we're willing to experience. And that might be our comfort zone. But every single one of us has one. And this, this term was coined actually in 1908 by two psychologists, Robert M. Yerkes and John D. Dobson. And they're the ones who discovered this reality that humanity operates in a zone in which they can take certain things, they can assume certain things, they can uh, rely on certain routines or certain factors of their environment that creates stability. And what they discovered is that within a relative comfort zone, they can have relatively good steady performance. This is what they discovered. If you define your comfort zone in that place, people have the ability to perform at a certain cadence that is relatively steady. But as they continue to experiment and and, uh, study this idea of the human psyche in relation to the environments they are in, they discover something else, what has now become known as optimal anxiety. They said, yes, it's true. Comfort zones create steady levels of performance, but... We've discovered that if you add a little bit of anxiety, you toss a variable in there. You you question whether or not certain things can be assumed. Something happens to the brain. It awakens with levels of creativity maybe that weren't present before. Resourcefulness starts to get to the surface. And there's an ability to problem solve at a heightened level. And they said, if we tip the scales toward anxiety, but not, not too much, that's paralytic. We know that. He says, but if you just add a little bit of anxiety, bring them to the edge of their comfort and have them just step outside of it. Well, we discovered that is where optimal growth and maximization of potential occurs. Is what they said. Optimal anxiety is where growth occurs. Just outside of one's comfort zone. Now, I, I recognize this. This is, um, it means that pushing too hard isn't healthy. But inherently, faith will call us to step outside of what we define to be safe and comfortable. And it's there. 
It's there that we discover the reality that we love our routines, our familiar settings. And maybe this is why traveling is such a, such a uh, well, it's a privilege, a luxury that we can enjoy, but it does something to us. It exposes us to other cultures and other ways of being, exposes us to other ways of thinking. Epiphanies occur. This is why when we change the environment or the way we do things, something occurs within us. It expands us. We feel it. It strengthens us. It, it, it increases our ability to see the horizon a little differently. And I thought about this because this is exactly what faith is all about. And I remember this kind of first occurring to me when, um, when I was younger. I was in my early 20s. I was around 21, 22 years old. And I had just started serving a couple years prior to that in our youth ministry. And I remember that the person who was leading our youth ministry, she had a burden, a desire to have these teens explore and expand beyond their comfort zones. And so we would go to diff different experiences. We would serve in different ministries in the city, in the inner city, in the Bay Area. And she would have us interact with different peoples and different cultures and do things to kind of expand their horizons. And well, I got to be a part of that because I was part of the team. And she ended up saying, you know what, why don't we go to Mexico and do a missions trip in Mexico? And I said, yeah, let's do it. And I got to be the translator because I, was the, I, I spoke Spanish. And they said, you could do it. And we trust what you say. You won't make things up. And, and so I said, all right. And so I became the translator. And I remember going there the first year and meeting the person that, that was appointed to us because what would happen is this organization would bring in about 1,000 students all over America, bring them into Baja California and in, in Ensenada and in, in, in Tijuana and, and they would bring them to, to different parts of Mexico and we would serve there. These students would gather together and we would have our meals together in the morning and the evening. But then during the day, we would go to different churches and different organizations and rehab centers and community gatherings where we could do things. Some of the things we would do is create like a program for the students, for the children, VBS, Vacation Bible School. We would make peanut butter and jelly sandwiches and go and make soup and hand it out to different people. And, and this is what we do. We create soccer games and things like that. And, and we were assigned to a man named Pastor Javier. And he had a rehab center. And he had a real heart, a real, real tender heart for people. In the first year we got there, I was really excited, and we, we, our students jumped in, and we had a great week of being able to experience this different culture. And though I knew the language, I didn't know the culture. In the second year, we, we understood what we were expected to do, and so we felt a lot more confident stepping into this environment, and we, we went ahead and served. The third year, the person who was in charge of our group, she said, you know what, we're getting a little bit complacent. We already know what to expect, so I think we, I'm going to ask Pastor Javier to branch us out a little bit. So she goes, I want you to have a conversation with me the first day we get there. Okay, so we get there. And she says, Pastor Javier, is there, you know, we've been doing this for two years. Is there anything that we could do that's a little outside of the ordinary? Because I want these students, you know, to kind of still experience this, right? And he says, you know what? Yeah, there, there's something. A lot of groups do what you do, um, which is great. But if you want to do something that very few do, um, there is a local landfill. And uh, there are people who live there. And no one really goes to them. And so I'm wondering if you'd be willing to go there. And I'm translating this. You know, and I, I heard this, and so I double-checked with him, and I, I said, are you saying that people live where all the garbage from Ensenada goes? He said, yes, those are the people. They've got, that is the bottom of the bottom. They have lost everything, and that is the only destination they can go to. I said, wow. And here's the thing about it. 
I remember discovering something about myself when he was saying this. See, I didn't know this about myself because I was a bachelor sharing a, a house with other bachelors. And you wouldn't know this if you stepped into my house. But I appreciated being clean. I, 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 was, I liked sanitation. And so part of me started feeling nervous. And I was okay with the mess because, well, I knew what was in the mess. And I was okay with messy people because I, I was friends with the messy person, even if it was the person in the mirror. And I remember feeling this comfort level with what messes looked like. But then when I started being told, you know what, I want you to come and I want you to bring these students to this, this landfill, I, I started getting anxious a little bit. And so I translated and she says, that's great, let's do it. And so then I translated, that's, she says, that's great, um, let's do it. And then, and then we, we move on and I start thinking, you know, I start getting more nervous. And so I start thinking, what, what are we gonna do? What are we going to give these people? These people live in the poorest of conditions. We don't have enough money. That's what they need. We have no ability to give them housing. Clearly, that's what they need. Our sandwiches and soup, what are we going to give them? And then I still kind of went back to this place of feeling unsafe and in that environment. So I said to Pastor Javier, I said, Pastor Javier, um, let me ask you something. In, in America, you know, the landfills, they organize the garbage. Do they do that here? I'm hoping against hope, you know. And he looked at me funny, almost as if, what? You know, he says, no, what? No, organized garbage? No, Every, they throw it away there. And then sometimes they burn some of it. I said, oh, they didn't help me. So then he goes, you know, I was there uh, a couple weeks ago. If you want to see some pictures, I, th I threw some stuff. But you want to see what it looks like? I thought, yeah, that's going to help me. Give me some known factors. So he showed me the pictures. That didn't help me. <laughs> Made it worse. And I started asking, Pastor Javier, what are we going to give them? What are we going to do? And I can't control how the students are going to respond. He goes, no, I want you to do exactly what you've been doing everywhere else. I want you to do it here. Have the students organize what they've been doing. And have, you lead songs, and you provide them with sandwiches and soup. And then I want you, you, Lewis, I want you to talk to them about Jesus. I said, okay, wait. I'm the translator. So you're supposed to talk to them about Jesus. And I'm supposed to let the Americans know what you're saying. So, you know, he goes, no, 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 no. They need you to tell them. What am I, I'm 22, what am I going to say? Do you, you know my home, I, I can't, I, I, what am I supposed to say? Well, Lewis, I want you to think about what Jesus has done in your life and tell them that. And so we show up. Three days later, the students come and they play soccer and they do this program and they feed them and people, people start coming out of the garbage, and you start to see the silhouette of their homes, and you know, heart breaks. You just feel like, man, I just want to give you everything. But if we gave you everything, that still wouldn't be enough. And we do everything we do, and we sing the songs, and then it was time, and Pastor Javier says, now, now I want you all to know that uh, God has sent this group of people from San Francisco to you, and he has asked Lewis to speak to you. And in my head, I said, no, you have asked me to speak to them. I'm not sure it's God yet. 
And so he has me come up, and I go, and I tell him, and I, I, I realize, what am I supposed to say? Five years into this journey, I said, okay, uh, um, all I can tell you is that, that Jesus met me where I was at. He met me in the shape I was in, in the place I was in, in the mental state I was in. He met me where I was at, and he embraced me, and he loved me, and he accepted me. I can tell you that. And I, 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 what I can tell you is that it's been five years, and he, he hasn't left me there. He, he, he has not left me there. He's taken me out of that place. And he's leading me out of that place. That's what I can tell you. And I realized as I was saying it to a group of people that I felt powerless to help, that I actually believed this. Jesus can do what no other person can do, which is to address the deepest need of the human heart. Something rather beautiful happened after that. A, 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 a wife came forward asking us teenagers and leaders, can we pray for her husband? And a, and a son came forward and asked, can we pray for, for his father? And, and, and a girl came forward and said, can we, can we pray for my family? And we did. We did the best we could. We prayed for them, and we had very emotional moments with them. And we walked away feeling like, I don't know if we did enough. We clearly didn't do enough. We need to do more. But what can we do? I don't know if we can undertake this project. I don't know if we could do this. But we did the best we could, and we went, and we talked with Pastor Javier, and we ended up, that was the final day we were there. And so the next day, we drive home, all of us impacted by this amazing experience. And the following year, more people decided we wanted to go to, to Mexico. And we go, and we talk to Pastor Javier, and I go, Pastor Javier, do you remember last year we went to the landfill? He goes, yes, I remember. I said, that was amazing. Do you do that with a lot of groups? He goes, oh, yeah, yeah. I take every group I possibly can there. And I thought, that's funny, because you told me very few people <laughs> go to the landfills. He says, very few people do. But I keep telling them that God so loves them that though their neighbors may not come to them, God keeps sending people from America to go to them, to tell them that he loves them. I said, wow. He goes, and, and I'll tell you what, Louis. Look, America sends, American churches, they send a lot of resources. They send a lot of clothing, a lot of food, a lot of money. That's not the issue. That's not what we need. What they need is to understand that they have gotten to the worst place in their life, but they don't have to stay there. And what they need is an internal motivation and hope that allows them to realize they can move out of that place. And you... And your groups keep talking about this Jesus that is able to do what nothing else can do. No food, no clothing, no shelter, no job. Nothing can give them the internal drive to move beyond what they know. Only Jesus can do that. I said, he says, so, you remember that guy you met and we prayed for? Yeah, he's now a part of our church community. He's uh, transitioning. He's part of the rehab center. Remember that girl that, that we, yeah, that's her family. And there's stuff moving because there's been a larger conversation that I've been having with them and that God's been having with them. You got to be a part of it. And this is what I realized. I realized I was uncomfortable. I was shy. I was nervous. I was feeling incapable. But all the while, God was already there. Just asking me, will you go beyond your comfort and recognize what I'm doing? 
This is why I love. This is why I love when Jesus interacts with people in the Gospels because what he does to us, listen, what he does to us is he helps us recognize. He meets us where we are. But he will always challenge us to step out as we put our trust in him. In fact, if you open up your handout, we'll take a look at this excerpt from this man's life. His name is Matthew, and he wrote this gospel, this account, and he's writing about himself in the third person. But he's writing about this first time he interacted with Jesus, and we're told in verse 9 that as Jesus was walking along, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. And Jesus said to him, follow me and be my disciple. And so Matthew got up and followed him. Which on the surface, it might seem like, what an amazing interaction. One sentence, and that was enough. But in reality, this is Matthew's way of summarizing a conversation that occurred. And what we have to understand is that this conversation was in the midst of a cultural context that it, unless we appreciate it, we may miss actually what was going on. Because Matthew identified himself as a tax collector. And what that means in his day is that he was one of the most despised people groups of his day. And see, he was a member of a tribe of people, the Israelites, who were oppressed by Rome. And tax collectors, they, in many ways, were seen as traitors to their own people because they would team up with Roman force and extract resources out of their own people and send them back to to the emperor. Now, that in itself would be bad enough. But a lot of times what tax collectors would do is they would recognize an opportunity. And they would not only ask for what Rome was requiring, but they would increase the taxes so that they could collect for Rome, but also enrich themselves while striking their neighbors poor. This this was untenable. uh, They were despised because of this. And so when Jesus steps into the scene, And he goes to the tax collector's booth and he looks at Matthew. He invites him to follow him. It's not necessarily the same way we would think about it. It's not, listen, will you, um, you, I want to, can you follow me? I want to show you something. It's not that. It's actually something of a cultural distinction in which rabbis and teachers had a practice in which they would come to people they saw potential in and they would say to them, listen, will you be part of like an apprenticeship with me? And will you become my student? My my way of life will be what you start to learn. Will you do that? Which was a statement of value on the student. But it wasn't just a statement of value on the student. See, the rabbis and teachers were always judged. Their reputation and their quality was always judged on the quality of the student. And the rabbi's level of acceptance and admiration was always connected to the potential and fruition of the one they taught. So when Jesus goes to Matthew, the tax collector, and embraces him and accepts him, and then says, will you become a part of a relationship with me in which my, listen, I believe in you. I believe in you. And not only do I believe in you, Matthew, I put my reputation on you. And I believe I can trust you with that. It was a statement of enormous worth. <laughs> Matthew understands exactly what's happening. And we're told in verse 10 that later, Matthew invited Jesus and his disciples to his home as dinner guests. 
along with many tax collectors and other disreputable sinners. It's, it's Matthew's way of saying that he understood exactly what was happening, and in his own way, he wanted to return the gesture of embrace. Uh, see, the crowd Matthew is used to running with, they're not of the best reputation. In fact, you would say maybe they have creative underground economic systems. And that is how they operate. And they're, they're more the made up of the marginalized of society, the ones who are despised, who are not seen as worthy. That would be Matthew's group. And the sense you get is that Matthew is accustomed to hosting gatherings. We would call them parties. And Matthew does something remarkable. Matthew decides he's going to invite all of his friends, all of his tax collector friends, and then others that are disreputable. That is, that's to say, they're a little bit worse. And he's going to host them in his house, and then he's going to say, now, Jesus, I want you to come through. And the way this works is that what Matthew is doing is that if Jesus vouched for Matthew's worth, Matthew is vouching for Jesus before his friends, which is an amazing statement that Jesus was not seen as a threat by Matthew and his friends. It's almost as if Matthew is saying, I vouch for him. And I trust him. I trust him to uh, treat you all as human beings and to be, be kind to you. And he, he hosts this gathering. And we're told that this party, this, this effort, this statement of Matthew vouching for Jesus, of accepting him there, in that environment, ends up causing somewhat of a stir. See, the house party would be no different than what Matthew probably was accustomed to doing. Friday nights, everyone goes to Matthew's house. This is what happens. And maybe in his community, this was what was known. You could hear the music and the songs. You could hear the, the, the ruckus of that crowd. But what was different about this time is that now Jesus was there. A man who was regarded as holy, who was given reverence, and elevated in society. And this, this bothered some people. We're told in verse 12 that when Jesus, when Jesus heard this, oh, I'm sorry, excuse me, verse 11, when the Pharisees saw this, that is the religious leaders of their day, they asked his disciples a shocking statement. Why does your teacher eat with such scum? It's a statement it is shocking in its nature. And here's, here's what we can guess. I think it's doubtful that Matthew invited the Pharisees to the house party. I think that would be doubtful. I think it would be doubtful that he would say, hey, guys, let's come up. Let's hang out. Let's do what we normally do. Jesus is coming. And by the way, religious leaders who hate us, come through. We're good. What's more likely is that word spread. Word spread like wildfire in a small, tight-knit community. And all of a sudden, this man who was coming speaking about God was hanging out at Matthew's house. And when the religious leaders heard about this, they, they had a problem with this. Well, this contradicts everything. Does he not know? His kind, our kind, don't hang out with Matthew and his kind. This doesn't happen. He's violating cultural norms here. He, he go, they go, and they go to his students who would know Jesus better than anyone else. And they would say, why... Why is, he having, um, why is he having dinner? And here's the word. With such scum. They're not even worthy of being regarded as people. Which we would say, that's the result of religious dogma. And that's fair. 
But I would say it's a result of human nature. Because we're reading this account now, 2,000 years removed, in the midst of a culture in which certain viewpoints means they're no longer human. And if we disagree with each other, it's no longer capable. We're no longer capable of having an honest dialogue with humility and mutual understanding. No, now you are less. This happens. This happens in religious circles, sure. It happens in secular circles. It happens in scientific circles. It happens in political circles, where the discourse publicly lowers itself to a pitched battle. And all of a sudden, one's conviction becomes a point of elevating them above the other and forgetting they're human. And into that environment, Jesus steps in. And what he says is it's remarkable. Because Jesus, we're told in verse 12, that when Jesus heard this, he, he said, listen, they, they misunderstand what I'm doing. Healthy people don't need a doctor. Sick people do. And then he added, now go and learn the meaning of this scripture. I want you to show mercy. Tell them this. I, I want you to show mercy, not offer sacrifices. I want, I've come to call not those who think they are righteous. It's an interesting phrase but those who know they are sinners. Jesus could have said a lot, but what he chose to say is penetrating. I love how G. Campbell Morgan said it. I, I went ahead and I'm just going to read this, but this is what he's saying that Jesus is trying to articulate. Go and learn what the heart of God is. Go and find out that according to your own writings, God is far more anxious to have mercy than he is to receive any offering that a man may give him. And when you have learned this, then you will understand why I sit down with publicans, that is, tax collectors and sinners, why I recline and eat with them. You understand the heartbeat of God is dominated by mercy. And so Jesus, when he's on the move, you know what he does? He makes us uncomfortable. And he calls us to join him in that space. So what I love about him is that he, listen, you know what he does to us, what he did to Matthew, what he did even to the Pharisees, is you know what he does? He calls out the best of us rather than disqualifying us for our worst. <laughs> Do you understand? Jesus calls out the best of people rather than marginalizing. You know what he refused to do? He refused to say an entire group of people are exactly what the worst qualities of that group of people are. He refused to say that. He refused to say, because there are worse days in people's lives, they are the comprehensive definition of that worst day. He refused to say that. Which is all too easy for us to do. No, what he would do is he would step into a person's life he would refuse to categorize, and he would define them not by their worst, but by the best inside of them. And he would say, Matthew, 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 I understand where you're at in society. I understand how you're treated by your neighbors. I understand how you're looked upon. Will you come and follow me? And will you discover what is better inside of you? Would you do that? <laughs> what he does, what he does 
is he ends up calling the best out of us. And if we are uncomfortable with Jesus in our lives, you know why it is? It's because a lot of times we want him to accept us and allow us to settle for less than our best. But he refuses. No, no. You can do it. Come on, Matthew. You can do it. He says it to us all the time. You can do it. You can step out of that place that you've known and you think you can't, but you can. You can step out. You can be better. I put it inside of you. I've put that potential inside of you and I'm asking it to come alive. Will you become the man, the woman you're supposed to be? Will you become the, the person, the human who is able to inhabit the best of your qualities? See, Jesus he will meet us where we are. But you know what he also does simultaneously? He elevates the bar. And he says, yes, I'm here. But we can go there. Let's get moving. And this is, this is when, when we start to sense him, do this in our lives, it, it starts to speak a different type of anxiety. The anxiety that hope breathes. The anxiety that courage pulls out. The anxiety that love speaks. You can do better. Step out of that place. And what, is that, what does that look like? It looks like him calling us out of our habits into stronger ones. It looks like him calling us out of ways of being that harm us and those around us into ways of being that will strengthen us and strengthen those around us. It looks like us not being willing to be defined by our worst, thinking we're, might as well lie down, give up. Jesus is saying, nope, you get up, you step out. I put it in you, you could do it. This relationship can do it. Because a lot of times we, so important for us, we and sometimes people in our lives, they define us by the worst of our days. Jesus never does that. Jesus defines us by the best of his days. He says, I, I know that's true, but I can help you do better, be better, become better. And we understand this. You know what we start to recognize is that Jesus invites us out of the burden of pretending we're perfect. He's the one who is able to um, set us free from the need to pretend we have it all together. <laughs> That's why I love Matthew. Matthew was a man who was embraced in his occupation and vocation of low repute, very low reputation. And you know what he does? He doesn't cut those people off. You know what he does? He throws a party for those people. And instead of dividing his life, you know what he does? He says, I'm done, I'm done pretending. I'm done, you know what I'm gonna do? I'm gonna invite Jesus. And I'm going to do something that is it's amazing. He removed the partition between the holy and the sacred and the secular. And he says, I'm going to combine these two worlds. I'm going to have Jesus meet my friends. Friends, meet Jesus. I'm going to stop dividing my life into these compartmentalized sectors. No, I'm going to trust that Jesus, when he meets people, he would treat them better than they've ever been treated before in their lives. And so I'm going to trust him with them. And my friends, I, when, when they start to discover who Jesus really is, not the figment of who they think he is or not who, how he's been misrepresented, but who he truly is, I'm going, to, I'm going to trust. They're going to discover they've never met a man like him. 
I'm no longer going to pretend. You understand, he calls us out of our comfort. Why? Because it's there we are set free. And in a day and culture where, and there's so much pressure to pretend everything is perfect and put together. He doesn't condemn the one who's doing that. Because the Pharisees, they lived in that place where they had a face and a facade to uphold. And Jesus was threatening it. And they, they did not feel comfortable with what he was, they, he was inviting them into. But what he said to them, the kindest words he could say is, listen, healthy people don't need a doctor. Sick people do. I didn't come for, for those who, um, how do I say this, think they're righteous. I came for those who know they're not. You know what he's saying? He's, he's the kindest thing he could say. He's saying what is true of any of us who are following Jesus. Pharisees. It's true in my own heart. It's true in a community of faith. Pharisees. Will you take a step out of your hypocrisy? Out of who you think you're supposed to be? And will you step into who I say you're supposed to be? Who I say you are, you were created to be. Who you truly are. Will you own that? We're all in transition. Out of pretending into owning who we truly are before God, who he says, his love says we are. When we discover that, you know what we discover? Is that mercy, and this is, this, is, this is so important for us to understand, the mercy of God is able to draw out the infection within our heart. That there is nothing on the planet that is able to do what Jesus does with us. When Jesus was trying to tell them, listen, I want you, you, Matthew, I want you to be free. You Pharisees, I don't condemn you. I don't judge you. I'm asking you, will you think about stepping out of that place and recognize your need? Because you know why? When we recognize our need, you know what becomes harder to do? It becomes harder for us to condemn somebody else's need. When we recognize our need, it becomes harder to judge somebody else's need. Because why? Mercy has prevailed in our lives when we do that. Jesus was saying, don't you understand? The Son of Man stepped out of heaven, perfection, stepped into human history, suspending judgment, suspending condemnation. And he stepped into humanity and has conversations with people, real people, real people. And he doesn't, he doesn't approach us condemningly or judgingly. No, he approaches us and he says, I, I want to heal you of what has infected your soul. And I want to embrace you and I want to accept you and I want to wrap my love into your soul and breathe life into you and have you understand, listen, there is something inside of you that needs to be drawn out that nothing else can. There is anger that needs to be removed. There is bitterness that needs to be removed. There is this sense of desire for things being right. And I want you to understand, I'm going to fill your soul with love that is incomprehensible and grace and mercy and peace and whatever it is that inside of you that says, ah, I don't think I can. It's a coward inside of me. He draws it out. And what does he put in? He encourages us. He instills courage into us. He is the only one who's able to do this. To remove the things that, that undermine the best of us. 
and to fill us with the strength we need to step out. No one else can do this. Only he can. <laughs> this is why the Pharisees had a hard time with him. I was reading this book called Unclean, which I thought it described the mentality the Pharisees were operating under. It's called the judgment of negativity dominance. And I just asked them to put this up there. The judgment of negativity dominance places all the power on the side of the pollutant. And when the pure and polluted come into contact with the pollutant, it, it is the more powerful force. The negative dominates over the positive. The Pharisees never once considered the fact that the contact between Jesus and the sinners might have a purifying, redemptive, and cleansing effect upon the sinners. Why not? Because the logic of contamination simply doesn't work that way. The logic of contamination has the power of the negative dominating over the positive. See, Jesus doesn't purify the sinners. The sinners make Jesus unclean. And I'll tell you what, before Jesus stepped onto stage in human history, this was true. We know it to be true. There is something of a, a virus-like quality to pollutants. It has the power to overcome. But when Jesus steps into human history, you know what happens? Things start to change. What is dead comes to life. What is weak becomes strong. What is broken becomes whole. What is rejected becomes accepted. What has low self-worth and low dignity ends up being fueled with a sense of embrace and power and courage. Jesus, this author said, is to coin the term positivity dominant. See, contact with Jesus purifies. If that's the case, if stepping out of what we know with Jesus has the ability to remove the infection in our soul and import his life and his strength, that gives us the capacity to discover forgiveness for our neighbor, mercy and grace in our home, in our neighborhood, in our work environments. It has the ability to transform. If we just step out, we'll discover mercy prevails. Mercy will always prevail with Jesus. God, I thank you that you are the one who steps into our lives along our path, who meets us where we're at. And you are both the strongest and the most tender. You are the one who is the cleanest and also the safest. You're able to speak life into our soul, speak mercy and grace over our lives. So I pray that you would help us trust you enough to take one step forward with you and discover what the psalmist says, surely mercy and loving kindness shall follow me all the days of my life. I pray for that for all of us, God. I ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen.